Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Words, what they mean to the speaker and what they mean to the listener, is the bedrock of human communication and cultural understanding. Susanna Jansen, a teacher and dedicated advocate of learning foreign languages at any age, is the author of Word Struck, The Fun and Fascination of Language, and she's our guest in this edition of Radio Curious. In Wordstruck, Jansen explores the multiple aspects of the meaning of words, how they translate from one language to another, from one person to another, and she describes curious experiences in her worldwide travels. She's particularly interested in the benefits of learning two or more languages and how doing so affects brain development, especially in early childhood. When Susanna Jansen visited the studios of Radio Curious on February 5th, 2017, we began when I asked her to describe the benefits of being bilingual. It is still fairly controversial, but it seems to be proven now that bilingual people, uh, and this starts from birth, probably starts before birth, actually. It probably starts in the womb, exposure to sounds in the womb. But infants are seen to have increased ability in areas like problem-solving, interpersonal relations, concentration, and memory. And If they're bilingual. If they're being exposed to other languages. And thus having the opportunity. To become bilingual. But they're measuring this in infants who are exposed to a second language in the home, being exposed to two languages in the home. Whether or not they go on to become bilingual or not isn't part of that that particular study. Then, of course, they're studying people at all ages, and particularly people as they go through their life with bilingual capabilities. They're still noticing these same enhanced abilities, particularly with focus, memory, um, what's called executive functioning, the problem-solving skills. And also, there has been a very interesting study that started in about 2010 and continued on over several years that indicates that bilingual people have a buffer against Alzheimer's of four to five years. So I don't know how they measure Is this person going to or not going to get Alzheimer's? But the studies show that the bilingual person has a four- to five-year buffer against getting Alzheimer's. And if they do get Alzheimer's, it progresses more slowly than it does in a non-bilingual person. I think that the advantages apply under any circumstances, even if a person starts to learn language late in life. But obviously, it's always true, the sooner the better. But that might be right now you know, for someone who hasn't done it in their earlier years. In an article that you wrote in anticipation of Valentine's Day, you mentioned that some languages have more compelling phrases of endearment than other languages, and that when people speak a different language, there's a personality change. Can you talk about that, how that balances among a person uh, who speaks a language that would have phrases of endearment, and also speaks a language that doesn't? Wow, that's such an interesting question. 
The personality thing, this has been studied and it's been written about widely. I go more by what I observed in my classroom with students studying Spanish with me and also with my own experience. One time in a conference, I was telling a story. I told the story first in English and then I told the story in Spanish. And the person I was working with in this activity said to me, you're an entirely different person in Spanish. And it had never occurred to me. And at that point, I started to really think about it, look at it, and also look into it. What I find is that in my second language, for me personally, I can say things that I might not have such an easy time expressing in my native language. I can say things more freely, particularly when it comes to terms of endearment. It's not that they don't mean as much to me in my second language, but I just have I just feel like I have more freedom. I have fewer social uh, restrictions on what I say. Can you give some examples uh, that, of what that freedom allows you or the fewer social uh, restrictions permit you to say? Hmm. It's hard for me to give advice to someone or to maybe correct them on something, um, particularly in a social situation. I don't mean in a classroom situation. But when I'm speaking Spanish, I have no problem doing that. I have no problem saying to someone in Spanish, gee, you know, it really would be better if you did this. Or someone is perhaps doing a job for me and I say, well, now this needs to happen. I can be, I can be more direct. But at the same time, I find that in my second language, I can also be, I think, often more heartfelt Does that apply when you're talking to a native speaker in that person's country? As well, yes. On both levels? Mm -hmm. As well as speaking to someone who who is, their second language is Spanish also. Heartfelt, what do you mean? I mean fewer social filters. I can just come more from the heart. I'm not thinking so much about what I'm saying as much as I'm just saying it. It's very difficult for me to explain because it happens at a level that is is almost deeper than an analysis for me. So I think it probably would be interesting for me to do more research online about how this how this plays out with with people who are actually being studied for different personality manifestations. Looking at your book, Word Struck, The Fun and Fascination of Language, um, you talk about words that exist in other languages that don't exist in English. Well, the reverse is true as well. There are words in English that don't exist in other languages or in many other languages, and maybe we can touch on those a little bit later. But some of them are legendary, like this German word, Schadenfreude, which means taking joy in another's misfortune. This one is particularly interesting because I think that that's a universal experience or a universal manifestation, and yet the word doesn't exist in the English language. It doesn't exist in many languages, but it certainly is something that we engage in. Why do you say it's something that's common to the human species? From my experience in our culture, and for, let's say from in Western cultures, we are very prone to say to ourselves, oh, I'm so glad that's him that got the ticket and not me. He got pulled over by the cop and I didn't. Or 
she had the fender bender and I didn't, or, or um, oh, the teacher came down on that student and not on me, or, oh, the tree fell on the neighbor's roof and not on mine. It just, it just seems to be our, our bent to do so. Perhaps it's relief that the misfortune didn't happen to the speaker and uh, saw it fall elsewhere. Yes, it's not so much that we're, th- we're saying, oh, he deserved it. <laughs> but it's like it's relief that it didn't happen to me. It happened to someone else. So staying with the concept of words in other languages that don't exist in English. There are many more. I did also a second article about the ones, just the ones in in Spanish. But I also came across some very interesting ones in languages that I don't know. And I verified them with some of my friends that do speak those languages. A word that's gotten to be very popular now, it's a Japanese term, wabi-sabi. It is celebration of what is impermanent and imperfect as as a thing of beauty. And this has become very popular now. There's a B&B back in the uh, the New England state somewhere, and there are restaurants with the name of wabi-sabi, which perhaps they're serving up incomplete dishes of imperfect food. I don't really know. But this has become a very popular term from the Japanese language because we don't have it in our English language. So we've actually taken the term out of Japanese, wabi-sabi. Another one that's very, very popular these days is the Danish term, hygge, hygge, and it's spelled H-Y-G-G-E, hygge. And what does it mean? It means cozy in our language does not quite convey it, not completely. It means just the warm, lovely feeling of being with friends next to the fire with a delicious hot drink in hand, listening to wonderful music. It's that kind of feeling. It's like I had to say all those phrases just to get it out, to really try to embody it. We know it when we feel it, but we don't have that word like the Danish word hygge that really encompasses it all. Susanna Jansen, uh, Spanish is a language that you know well and have taught many years. Can you give us some examples of what we're discussing in Spanish versus English? One example that I love is the word sobremesa, because it it's simply one word that describes fully the experience of sitting at the table after the meal has ended to just be with the people that you've dined with, to just have conversation with them. And look how many words it took me to describe that. Sobremesa. That's such a beautiful word. A conversation sobremesa. You'd have a, oh, estamos aquí de sobremesa. We're here after the meal, just conversing with each other, enjoying each other's company. Susanna Jansen, as as we've spoken, there are words in other languages that we don't have in our English parlance. But are there words in English that don't exist in other languages uh, that you could discuss for us? Well, of course, there are all the the technology words that come out of America mostly, so there's no translation for those. I mean, like a mouse, you can translate it as the word mouse, but that wouldn't be very sensible. But I found words, especially when I'm teaching Spanish and using Spanish, in the Romance languages, there's no word for shallow, for example. And that would be shallow as a depth of water or shallow as a person. There simply is no word. The only way to say it is less deep. 
that I find is very interesting. Another word that doesn't seem to exist in Romance languages is the verb to afford, like I can't afford to buy that car. The only way I can say that is my money won't reach that far. I don't have the funds to do that. There's no verb to afford. And then there's things like babysitter, dog catcher, storage unit. That It's a concept that doesn't exist in other languages. If we think about, for example, in Mexico, in Latin America, in China, people don't call up a babysitter to take care of their kids. It's the grandmother that comes over. It's the mother-in-law that comes over. And I, I just personally find these really fascinating because I, I will see that there's words that I look up over and over again, like helpful, and I can never find an adequate Spanish translation for the word helpful. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Susanna Jansen, the author of Wordstruck, The Fun and Fascination of Language. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Susanna, the current situation in our country with President Trump being who he is, choosing the words and the terms that he uses, are more difficult than that of his predecessors to uh, translate into other languages. Can you share with us your thoughts? I have given it some consideration because I've done quite a bit of translation in my day. Not something I want to continue doing, though. It's so, so difficult. But I read an interesting article about the problem of translating what President Trump says. And it was based on an article that was written by a well-known translator, a French woman. And what she has said is that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to adequately translate Trump. In order to translate a person, you really have to kind of be able to get inside their head She said it was very easy to get inside President Obama's head because his thinking was very logical, and he also had quite an elegant way of expressing himself. And in the case of Trump, what she points out is that his thoughts do jump from one to another, so often there's a disconnectedness about them, and he invents words, he uses slang, he is almost impossible to translate in a way that the French people or people in another country will really be able to understand what he's saying. It's very, very colloquial speech. I would say, from an ex-translator's point of view, impossible to translate. Because the expressions don't exist in other cultural forms of language. Yes, that, that as well. And because of the disconnectedness of the ideas... And she also said at one point in her article that what she writes as a translator also reflects upon her. And so she's caught between trying to reproduce his words very faithfully and trying to make sense out of them for, in her case, the French people. Susanna, you mentioned in your writings the language of compassion, and I'm curious as to how that can become a focus of when somebody speaks to another individually or a group. When I wrote the article about the terms of endearment, I did, of course, focus on all of these wonderful terms like the French, my little cabbage, and the Italian, my little microbe, because they're so fun and they're so cute. But my overall point was that it doesn't really matter what 
little animal you call your loved one or your child. It's about the language of compassion. It's about speaking from the heart, and it's about having conversation that offers an opening for another person to express themselves and for the two of you to get to know each other better. We think about this a lot these days as we look at text messaging and we look at Twitter and Instagram and all these instantaneous forms of communication, which certainly seem to be the way of communicating in this early part of the 21st century. And those of us who aren't native to that technology, to these technologies, in fact, we are naive about them. And we kind of wonder, hmm, are we losing some of that compassion in the technological movement of writing a LOL for laugh out loud instead of... (laughs) If you're laughing out loud as you just did, I can see the expression on your face. Mm -hmm. But when it's LOL, that describes an expression which creates an image in the mind of the reader of LOL. As does the emoji as well. You know, the, the little smiley face or whatever it is. And last year, when I was writing about the words of the year, one of the big dictionary companies chose an emoji as the word of the year. And an emoji, of course, is not, or an emoticon, whatever, you know, one of the two terms you want to call it, it's not actually a word. It's a small circle with a couple of slits for eyes, and in this case, big tears coming out the corners of the eyes, and this was um, so joyful that I'm crying or something like that. And I said kind of in a comical way in the article that maybe it was time to invent a new verb. Maybe now we need the verb to emojiate. Not just to emote, but to emojiate, because we've got these little things that tell us how we're feeling. How would you define that? To emojiate. To um, not actually feel the emotion, but just to tack onto an email, a little circular face that shows how I'm feeling. Can somebody else's drawing of an array of emotions include the one that you actually may be feeling? I don't think so. I don't even think it could include the one they were feeling. I mean, I put smiley faces on my emails now and then because it's kind of a fun, convenient thing to do. I want to say, yeah, I'm happy about this. But now there's this whole box you can choose from of emojis, and I guess I would rather describe my emotions or tell a person I'm sad or, gee, I'm so happy that this happened rather than just tack a picture on there. Let's talk about language police. Mm-hmm. Um, language police in our country um, limits us from speaking on this program George Carlin's seven words that deal with bodily functions and sexual activity. <laughs> but language police control the morphing of language. For instance, I hear many times when I say thank you to someone, the response is no problem makes me wonder if me having engaged with them was a problem. Mm -hmm. I think people in our generation do think that. We start to wonder that. And interestingly enough, there is no official language police in this country, but there's very unofficial things going on, definitely, with dictionary companies and so forth. I feel the same way. I mean, when I hear no problem, I feel like there is a problem. And I have had that conversation with a number of waiters in restaurants after they serve me a meal and I say thank you and they say no problem. 
I kind of feel kind of like I have to bring it up and have a little chat with them about it. Not to say don't use it, but just to ask why they do. Why can't your welcome suffice any, any longer? It seems like it doesn't. What are the answers that you receive? Well, they just say, well, that's what, that's what I say. Or that's just the way it is. Or that's my way of saying you're welcome. Or we all say that. Or something along those lines. And, of course, the, what will happen, and probably the worst thing that can happen with that, is that that will go to other countries next, as most of our stuff does. Most of our stuff in language and film and art gets absorbed into other countries. And many other countries actually do have a real, live language police. Spain has the Royal Academy of Language, La Real Academia. Not only the one in Spain, but every one of the 21 Spanish-speaking countries has a branch of that Royal Academy. And this organization of mainly very elderly men of letters, a couple of women in there now, they determine what can and cannot be used in the language, and of course what can and will and will not end up in dictionaries. And right now they have quite a campaign going on on television with commercials to try to get people in advertising to stop using English words, which are used so oh, so ubiquitously because of the somehow conviction that English words are more attractive, that they're sexier, English words are more effective in advertising, people will respond and buy. So the Spanish government is really coming on strong. The French government is coming on very, very strong against the incursion of English words into the French language. Some words have been simply outlawed in any kind of official documents and even in some of the newspaper articles. Words like uh, words like email, even, and words like texting, and words like um, the tech words that they just don't accept as being part of the language. The tech words are the hardest ones to translate, so of course they get absorbed into other languages, but the French insist that, and right or wrong, I'm not saying one way or the other, the French insist that these have to be translated. A word has to be created in French. And one more example, the Italians, on the other hand, they have a language police, but they're only recommending that people opt for Italian over English words when they're speaking, when they're writing. And it's impossible because if I read an article like a business article in Italian, I would say fully between an eighth and a quarter of the words are in English. They just use the English words like marketing, manager. You mentioned an English word may be sexier than a word in uh, French or Spanish. In Spanish or, no. in this case. Mm -hmm. What would be an example? I'll give you the example with the television campaign that the um, Royal Academy has used. It is an advertisement of a beautiful woman. She's holding a rose to her cheek, and it's a perfume ad. And it goes on to say in Spanish, a new fragrance that opens up new doors, that makes you the woman that you are destined to be. Swine, the fragrance of your dreams. And then... After it plays out, the man comes and he embraces her. And then it says, swine, the fragrance of your dreams. It means pig, but it sounds so beautiful in English and it smells so terrible. And then the two, the couple, they look at each other, you know, their brows furrow. It's really quite effective in, 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 a, in a cheesy kind of way. 
I think it's really very effective. I'm wondering what the response has been in Spain. But that's an example, you know, of naming a perfume, of naming a garment, of naming a, a toaster, an English name, because it's just perceived to be more valuable. Well, Susanna Jansen, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I mm-hmm. have questions about you. Well, sure. Can we begin with a eureka or an aha moment that uh, gave you new insight into your pending life or brought you into new territory? Oh, well, if it's new territory, absolutely. And it turned into this book, and I don't say this as a plug for the book, but when I retired five years ago, I wasn't twiddling my thumbs, but I thought, gosh, I've got this whole pile of scribbled notes. Am I ever going to do anything with this? And I had kind of an aha moment when... um, I started seeing that our local newspaper actually had a few columnists. And I really thought, in a flash, I thought, well, why not me? And if not now, when? Am I going to die with that pile of notes on my desk? And so I started to write. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? Oh, and it is so precious. Well, I will definitely keep on writing, and I do think I have two more books in me, at least two more books in me. Can you share any thoughts of what they may be? One for sure is going to be a book for intermediate and advanced students of Spanish. It's not going to be a textbook. It's going to be a book to ferret out the things that we as English speakers fall into as pitfalls when we're speaking Spanish because of our own language. So we're patterning Spanish after our own language and making the same mistakes over and over again. And I just think that this would be like a a guidebook, you know, it it would be a handbook for students. Would that not, uh, would that application not fit um, anybody learning a second language that they did not learn originally as a very young person? Mm, it would only fit Spanish learners because the same thing would happen. If I'm learning Japanese, I will unconsciously be applying my English patterns to Japanese and not even... That's what I mean. Yeah. But I wouldn't be able to write that book. The only one I can really write at this point in my life is the the one for Spanish speakers. Because of your personal experience Mm -hmm. with Spanish. Right. But I would love to see that book written for all languages, English speakers learning any language. Well, pending the writing of that book, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? I'm finishing up now a book that I am just loving. And it's written by Phil Cousineau, and it's called A Book of Roads. It is, of course, nonfiction. I think the subtitle is Travels from Michigan to Marrakech. And I just, I love his writing. I love reading about travel. It's very inspiring to me. I only let myself read one short chapter a night so that I can make it last as long as I can. Well, Susanna Jansen, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It's been lovely. Susanna Jansen is a writer, public speaker, and teacher dedicated to changing the linguistic culture of America by advocating the learning of foreign languages. Based in Ukiah, California, she's a foreign language educator as well as an author, speaker, and newspaper columnist on all topics related to words, language, and culture. The book Susanna Jansen recommends is A Book of Roads, 
Travel Stories from Michigan to Marrakesh by Phil Cousineau. This program was recorded on February 5th, 2017. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website. They're free for anyone to enjoy, download, and broadcast as you wish. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The snail mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.